0: Let's pray as we come now to that word. You know, O God, that I am powerless. You know that no uh, power of speaking or presentation can change human hearts. You know that none of our human ears can understand the first thing about the things of God apart from your spirit. So now, as we apply ourselves to 2 Corinthians, may you, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, make your light to shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, you know the church in Corinth, we're a church, they were a church as well, they were a 2,000 years ago though, a bit before our time, they were built on a very solid foundation. The Apostle Paul had preached and God's power, God's grace had taken root in that place. But then in Paul's absence, new spiritual mentors, teachers had come in to influence them. And the danger was that if the Corinthian church listened to these new spiritual mentors, they would frustrate everything that God in his grace would otherwise do in this church. Worst of all, these Corinthians, they were very tempted to follow these new mentors. Because these new mentors, these new teachers, their message seemed reassuringly kind of authoritative and weighty because they kept appealing to Moses, the ancient law of Moses and the Corinthians loved the way these speakers were so professional in their communication skills. Plus these newcomers charged a lot of money. Do you know the phrase reassuringly expensive? That's what they felt. They thought we paid decent money for these people therefore we must be getting great ministry Well, these newly arrived ministers, mentors, they poisoned the Corinthians against Paul. They said, Paul, look at it. Look, Paul is a pathetic physical specimen because the thing was Paul had been imprisoned. When Paul arrived in a new place, he didn't ask what what are the hotels like. He asked what are the prisons like because that's where he always ended up. He'd been beaten many times and stoned and all sorts of other things. The subject to riots, all sorts of danger. He was a physical wreck. And he displayed none of the polish of those professional communicators with their impressive CVs endorsed by respected names. Have some self-respect, Corinthians, these mentors were saying. You deserve better than Paul. In fact, you deserve us. That was their basic message. And the Corinthians were all too ready to believe them. Now the question is, why does this concern us today? We're talking about a church 2,000 years ago and a good, deal, a good hundred, many hundred miles away. Why does it concern us? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First is that we're studying Paul's second letter to the Corinthians this autumn, and this morning we're focusing on chapter 5. But I need to take quite a long run-up if we're going to really jump into chapter 5. Need to, we need to understand the context into which he is writing But there's another reason we've got to understand this as well, which is that we would be very naive to think that we are immune from abandoning apostolic Christianity in our day. We we, We are not immune from it. We are in constant danger of it. It is vital that we as a church grasp the content, the character of the apostolic ministry. Apostolic Christianity, apostolic ministry, what's that, you ask? Fair enough. What am I talking about? Apostolic. What is this apostolic Christianity? Well, it's the only authentic version of Christianity that there is. Just think about it this way. Did Jesus ever write a book? No. He didn't write a book. Jesus didn't write a single book. He commissioned his early disciples, his apostles to proclaim the truth about him. We know about Jesus, we know Jesus through their writings, which we now have recorded for us in the New Testament. Now, Paul was one of these apostles. Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus. It's a very famous story in um, the book of Acts. He met him. It was very dramatic. And that's why Paul insists that the Corinthians listen to him. It's It's not just that he's going oh, you know, I think my theology's better than theirs. No, not at all. It's, if you lose the apostolic teaching, you lose Jesus, you lose him. Now these newly arrived mentors, they really majored on the law of Moses, the, the, the Old Testament part of the Bible. But the apostles came along and said, hang on, Moses is not to be the focus anymore. Because, they said, Jesus has fulfilled the law that was given to Moses. Moses was pointing forward to Jesus, said the apostles. And now Jesus has come. And Jesus, they said, has established a new covenant. That is, a new arrangement by which ordinary men and women can receive the life of God, the love of God. The life, the light, the love of God by the Spirit. I mean, it, the, the power of this new covenant ministry, this apostolic preaching, when people believe it and receive it, it transforms what people in a way that the law of Moses could never do. Because this, the, by the, when the new covenant is preached, when the apostolic message is preached, that's when the Holy Spirit gets to work. The Holy Spirit takes the law that was written on tablets of stone in Moses' day and he takes that very same law and he places it within the hearts of people. And so suddenly from within they have the power and the desire to do what God has always commanded. What power this apostolic ministry has this new covenant ministry through this ministry God shines into dark human hearts like mine and yours with a light and he does it in a way as dramatic as right at the beginning when he spoke light into darkness it's that powerful it is powerful beyond anything that we could ever imagine and yet those new mentors in Corinth had a point. I mean, Paul was hardly an advert for a life of peace, health, and prosperity. If you were running a theological college and you wanted to encourage students to come and study for a life of ministry, you would not put Paul on the front cover. There were too many whiplash marks on his back. You wouldn't put him there. He was hardly an advert, Peace, health, and prosperity. One of the teachers, a teacher at one of my secondary schools, he used to tell us when we were about 11 or 12, he used to say to us, lads, you need to aim to slice through life like a knife through butter. And we'd be like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) Slice through life like a knife through butter. But Paul appeared to be more like a blunt bread knife, failing to slice through a loaf of stale bread. That's what Paul's life looked like. So the newcomers were saying to the Corinthian church, there's a vast discrepancy, they said, between the power that Paul claims that his preaching has and that his ministry has and the weakness that characterises his life. There's a massive contradiction to which Paul would say, yes, there is. There is a vast discrepancy between the power that I preach and the and the and the weakness of my life yet paul would say it's in that very discrepancy that very contrast that god reveals his power god's power is displayed says paul in my weakness have a look at chapter 4 verse 8 we're still running up to chapter 5 chapter 4 verse 8 paul says we have this treasure of the of the new te- new covenant ministry we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from ourselves. Yes, Paul, he could have lost heart through all his weakness and suffering. When he got up in the morning, his body would have ached, as would yours if you had been flogged with 40 lashes minus one several times in your life. You would have ached and groaned and dragged your body around. He could have lost heart, but chapter 4 gives us one massive reason why he didn't, which is that God's power overflows, not through the things that were strong about him, but precisely through those weaknesses that characterised his life. Precisely through his bodily weakness, his human limitations, his precarious existence clay pots my dear fellow clay pots you i'm a you're, clay pots i think i hope you realize that that's what we are you can con yourself until you're about sort of 37 that you're not a clay pot and then you start to realize i'm a clay pot that's it clay pot but does it lift your fragile spirits we have this treasure in jars of clay we don't have to pretend to be golden vases. Do you know the thing is, if we really were golden vases, then God would simply never entrust His power to us. Just, just, just suppose for a moment we were golden vases. Suppose I'd followed that teacher's advice at school and I really was powerfully slicing through life like a knife through butter. Well, in that case, it would be completely unclear whether whatever I achieved or you achieved was for me or from God but if the glory shines out of a fragile unremarkable chipped leaky clay pot there's no doubt where the power's coming from it's his it can only be you know as a minister I acknowledge this myself as a minister and as a man as a human being I have an instinctive longing For some strength that I can amass within myself and call my own. Some level of mastery over life, which will enable me to slice through life like a knife through butter. Really, if I'm honest, that's there. That accounts for the pile of self help books that some of us have amassed during our lives. We're longing for the secret. Forget it. We're clay pots. See, we want to slice through life serenely with power of our own. But God's too wise to grant his people, particularly his ministers, that wish. It's a misguided wish. He wants, he is so good, he wants you and I to experience true divine power. And that's why he only entrusts his power to clay jars. See, this isn't stated as often as it should be. Um, in the churches in truth it can only be in our weakness that we experience his power it can only be in our weakness that we experience his power this is very hard for us to come to terms with but it is glorious it is gospel truth and very liberating when we embrace it well that's the very long run-up Now, chapter 5, I'm going to sort of helicopter through chapter 5 in a bit more detail. So, Paul doesn't lose heart as he looks at his bodily weaknesses, because they are the very means God uses to display his power. And he doesn't lose heart in the face of a reality that is actually more disturbing even than his bodily weakness. Namely, and his ministry had recently come into uh, uh, contact with this, death. Paul had recently nearly been killed for his ministry, preaching the gospel. Well, you might think that that would be a hint to him to change his approach. It's a a little bit dangerous, Paul, this new covenant ministry. Maybe you should, you know, tone it down a bit or or do it in some other way. How can Paul be so confident just to carry on with a ministry that was a threat to his very life? Because, look at chapter 5, verse 1, if you've got the Bibles open. uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. How can he be so confident? We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Why doesn't Paul lose heart? It's because his body's death, whenever it comes, is not his body's end. The apostolic message, i try and be very clear about this, the apostolic message is not about our spirits... Finding a way to get free of our bodily life into a spiritual, heavenly arena. That is not the apostolic message. No, according to the apostles, they proclaim that Christ's body was raised from the dead. And, as a result, he will raise the bodies of his faithful people when he comes. Are you clear? Followers of Jesus Christ look forward to an everlasting future in an eternal body. I believe in the resurrection of the body, says the creed. New bodies, which will be, well, as he puts it in chapter 5, verse 1, that contrast, he says, they'll be like solid houses compared to an increasingly leaky and flimsy tent that we inhabit now. So some of you will know, um, who've been around church for a while and have struggled with the frustrations of ageing, You'll know what I tend to say, or you might know. Your physical prime is still to come. I say that to people on their deathbed. If I have the privilege of visiting you on your deathbed, that's what I'll say to you. Your physical prime is ahead of you. That is, if you trust in Jesus Christ. If you don't, the story is very different. If you trust in him, that's the truth. The physical future of the transformed body lies ahead of you. Now, Paul, as he writes chapter 5, has a particular question in mind. Just, just think this through for a moment. We only receive our resurrection bodies when Jesus returns at the end of history. So, question is, what happens if we die before Jesus returns? That's what, this is what Paul is wrestling with. Answer, we will enter, what Paul calls here, an unclothed state Unclothed is what the church has tended historically to call the intermediate state. That is that we go to be with Jesus spiritually, but without our bodies. And this is, that's what Paul's talking about in verse 4. Look at verse 4 carefully. He says, for while we are in this tent, that is this current body, we groan and are burdened. Because we don't wish to be unclothed but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up with life. Let me just try and explain that. Paul is Paul groans in this decaying body that he's got now. And that is partly because he doesn't exactly want it to die before Jesus comes. He doesn't exactly want that because that will mean being unclothed, in, in, unclothed and out of body. But... That's not the main reason he groans. The main reason he groans is out of longing for what he wants most of all, which is for Jesus just to come instantaneously, which he could at any time, and swallow up this mortal existence with its body, with eternal bodily life. But, says Paul, look, but that's, even if I do die before Jesus returns, and by the way, he did, the church history informs us that he was beheaded in Rome in about AD 64, he's still full of confidence. He's still full of confidence. Verse five is filled with assurance because God's purpose there, it tells us that God's purpose is God's purpose to raise our bodies and swallow them up with eternal bodily life. It cannot fail because it's God's. God's purpose can't fail. And this is his purpose to raise our bodies. And in the meantime, while we wait, it says there in verse 5, he's given us his Holy Spirit as a deposit to guarantee that he will fulfill his purpose. Do you know how a deposit works? You put down 25 quid, you take the rowing boat out. You lose that rowing boat, you lose your 25 quid. That's the way it works with a deposit. God has put his own Holy Spirit as a deposit. So would God decide to not go through with this, not raise our bodies? Of course not he would lose his own Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's been put down as a deposit. Well, that's never going to happen. It is absolutely sure. So Jesus, he might return in our generation, but if he doesn't, we've got nothing to fear. We've got nothing to fear now in this tent life where we live by faith, not by sight. We've got nothing to fear, actually, from being unclothed in death. True, it's not the final goal of our existence. But actually, says Paul, he says it's, inf- it's better than this life. Much better. Because it's spent in the immediate presence of Jesus. All of which ought to leave us focused on one priority only. Whether we are in the tent of this body or otherwise. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, we make it our goal to please Jesus. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Right, some of you, I anticipate, will be puzzled. You'll be thinking, hang on, I thought that um, believers in Jesus Christ were justified, were saved in a way that they wouldn't be judged. Yes, true, there is no question Uh, salvation is by god's grace alone jesus's death has taken away the condemnation we deserve that is true but this judgment seat he talks about here in verse 10 is not the verdict of whether we're saved or damned in fact it is only the saved it is only the people who have put their faith in jesus who will stand before this throne of christ before him our service for him will be assessed what have we made of the opportunities that he has given to us it will be revealed it will be unveiled and bluntly amid the joy of celebration there will be some regret as well now paul found that deeply motivating in fact he's about to mention three major motivations that keep him serving jesus And they arise from the heart of this apostolic message itself. So first of all, this assessment uh, at Christ's judgment seat is in mind. He says, look, he says it, verse 11. Do you, as you think about Jesus as looking at your Christian service, do you think like this, verse 11? Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. In this case, Paul's trying to persuade the Corinthians uh, not to abandon the apostolic message and to despise the, the apostles' approach to their ministry. Fear of the Lord. It's that motivating respect that makes you rightly determined to please him above all things, no matter what anybody else says. Before Christ, before the throne of Christ, with that prospect in mind, Paul dares not leave the Corinthians to squander God's grace. Even if it means stooping to defend himself to them in this letter, which must have been agony to write the second letter to the Corinthians. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord. But fear isn't Paul's only motive. His second motivation, verse 14. Look at this. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Jesus' love transforms the way Paul sees everybody. Jesus' love has come in and completely changed the landscape. Because um, everybody who believes the apostles' message, um, what happens is they get their hearts turned inside out. We reason. If you've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, you will reason that since Christ died for you and died for all, therefore there's nobody beyond the reach of his salvation. You see people differently. You don't see them in terms of their salary or their job or their location or their skin color or anything like that. That's all secondary. You see them in terms of whether they need to know the grace of God yet. That's how you see people. We stop measuring people by worldly standards. We see those outside Christ as the people he loves and longs for. We see people who are in Christ for what they really are. And what are they? Verse 17, very famous verse. Verse 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Because the Holy Spirit has come in and has remade them on the inside. This is the power of new covenant ministry. The Spirit comes in. God recreates our our inner desires and our energies and our hopes and our convictions. That is the power of the apostolic message. It brings the action of God into our lives. Verse 18. See this is it's all gods. That Paul couldn't be more clear. This is, not, this is not a human accomplishment. Verse 18. All this is from God. Who was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. The compelling love of Christ. Powerful motivating forces. But Paul mentions a third. Which is that God has appointed the apostles and he's appointed us to continue to proclaim their message. He's appointed us as ministers of reconciliation. The reconciliation he has accomplished in Jesus. This is extraordinary. God has taken the initiative. Have you ever needed to be reconciled to somebody? It's very hard to take the initiative if, you, if you're the one that's been wronged. Yeah, that's exactly what God's done. He's the one who's been wronged, yet he takes the initiative to reach out to us at such cost to meet these alienated sons of daughters, you and me. It is we who've left, we've rejected him, but God lovingly takes that first decisive step because there's a price to pay for us, for our turn away from God, uh, that is for our sin, there's a price to pay for our sin. God's not going to turn a blind eye. He's not going to say, oh, it doesn't matter. He will judge and he will condemn sin. Even in his loving determination to forgive us, he will not let sin's penalty go unpaid. But he determines to pay that penalty himself. Did you know that? That's the apostolic message. Jesus pays the penalty himself that you deserve to pay so that you don't need to pay it. Verse 19 says it so clearly. God was in Christ... Reconciling the world to himself. How? By not counting people's sins against them. Instead, God counted them against himself. He counted them against himself in Jesus. The perfect son standing in the place of the alienated, rebellious sons and daughters. Jesus pays the penalty for our sin in the crucifixion. And as a result... The alienated children can stand in his rightful place. He stood in our rightful place, so we can stand in his rightful place. That is reconciled, forgiven, righteous in the sight of God. It's a loving exchange. It's a saving swap. Listen to verse 21. God made Jesus, his son, who who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, he was made what we are, that is sin, so that we can be counted as what he is righteous. God's reconciliation, it was accomplished once for all in that historic event outside Jerusalem in about AD 33, but it reverberates into the world through the apostles' message. Paul realizes that, yeah, it's his lips that are moving, it's his pen that's writing but it is the reconciling God who speaks. Verse 20, he puts it, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Maybe you aren't reconciled. You're still alienated from him. You don't need to be. You do not need to be. Be reconciled to him. He's calling you home for sure. There's no question about that. He is aimed at, he's aiming at you. He wants you home. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, he wants you. He's paid. He calls you. But as we just tie all this together, 2 Corinthians was actually written for believers. It wasn't written primarily for people who were not believers. It was written for those who had already received and made a start with God's reconciling love. Listen to what Paul says to them. Chapter 6, verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. That's an appeal to us too. The grace of God has arrived through the apostolic message. Do you believe it? If so, it's arrived. Don't Don't squander it. Don't let it go. Don't let some other agenda shape you so that its fruit is frustrated. Let it take its full course. Let it increasingly shape you, your life decisions, your priorities, your spending, your time. What matters to you in this short life, in this world? Do not receive the grace of God in vain. never never wandering from this grace of God because the content and the methods seem unfashionable or illegal or whatever. Don't wonder. Ask yourself before God's spirit, test your life by this appeal. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Test yourself. I test myself. And then perhaps after reordering your priorities, let's let you be reestablished by this same grace, this grace of God that comes. This grace ministered to our hearts now through the apostolic testimony to Jesus Christ. This grace is the very opposite of vain, pointless. No, just think about what we've been talking about. This grace is powerful in our weakness. That's where we need it. This grace is triumphant in our death well, that's where we will need it. And this grace is effective to reconcile sinful, darkened women and men like you and me to the one true and living God. Let's pray. So much in that passage. Almost every single verse there uh, merits careful thought and study, attention. And yet the thrust is clear. You've done a wonderful thing through Jesus Christ. Your spirit comes into the lives of all who receive this apostolic testimony to Jesus. And we do not want to receive it in vain. Teach us, Spirit of God, Show each of us what it is, where it is in our lives. We need to reorder things to move forward with you. Oh God, have mercy upon us and bless us this morning. In the name of Christ, amen.